to Matthew chapter 4. So in our series through the book of Matthew, this is now message number 6, and the title of this message is Humble Beginnings. Matthew chapter 4. Verses 1 to 11 is what we're going to look at, and I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 as we get started. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. So in a previous message in the end of chapter number 3, we saw how that by water and by word, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God, and the servant of Yahweh from Old Testament prophecy. Jesus walked from Nazareth to Jordan where John was baptizing in order to be baptized by John. and He was immersed in the river there for consecration to God, and that was followed by the Holy Spirit anointing him for the work of new covenant priest in his office as Messiah. So the four centuries of silence were definitively ended. Um, When you end the Old Testament, about four centuries before uh, the time of the New Testament begins, God spoke from heaven. And he spoke from heaven to declare his beloved son in whom he delighted. So God's response to the laments and the prayers of Israel was to declare his son. So now as chapter 4 opens, John quickly fades to the background. He doesn't go away entirely. He still um, will feature in in the Gospel of Matthew um, in a few places yet. He certainly is an important figure, but he somewhat fades to the background as Matthew focuses on Jesus, who goes from his baptism and his anointing by the Spirit to his temptation. Now, Matthew is clear that Satan tempted Jesus after that he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. So as we think about this scene of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, it is an obvious conflict. But why did Jesus face this temptation? Why did Jesus have to be tempted this way? And why did Satan so willingly tempt Jesus? So if we work through this passage, I think we'll get a good sense for why it was that Jesus was tempted, and I'll attempt to answer those questions at the end. So we're going to look at this as it develops in three different parts. In verses 1 to 4, we have the first temptation, verses 5 to 7, the second temptation, and verses 8 to 11, the third temptation and the end um, of the temptation of Christ. So we're going to start with the first temptation. So let's look here at verse number one. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So Matthew tells us that Jesus was led or he was brought by the Spirit um, to the wilderness. And the wilderness that he is referring to here is likely the desert area of Judea. This would have been a more um, 
barren and, and unpopulated, um, rough terrain, hardscape with wild animals and little food, little water sources. And most likely this is in a mountainous area that's about eight miles or so west of the Jordan River where he was baptized by John. And we're told that the Spirit led him there or sent him there and, and led him there, as he says in verse 1 specifically, to be tempted by the devil. Now the word for devil, diabolos in the Greek, it's the word that means accuser or slanderer. So it has the idea not just of accuser, but of false accuser even. And it is used here with the definite article. In other words, to be tempted of the devil is what Matthew tells us. So there's no question that he is referring to the being that we refer to as the devil or Satan or some of the other names that we might know him by. So this temptation that Jesus goes to face, this is not just the temptation that is common to man. This is not a common temptation as that we all experience as a result of living life in a fallen world. Jesus was deliberately and was intentionally tempted in ways here that you and I are not. He did face common temptations, all the common temptations of mankind that we do as well. He did face those um, otherwise. But when we think of this temptation, we realize that not only could we not withstand these temptations, we can't even withstand much less temptations than these. So this temptation is certainly on a different order, very specific and particular time of testing. Verse number 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. So the rest of this preparation, he goes to this mountainous desert area, and the rest of his preparation is spent in 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. And Matthew states that Jesus was hungry. Now, that of course seems rather obvious to say that Jesus was hungry after fasting for 40 days. The word that is used here for hunger is actually, it's a very strong hunger. We might even say famished. Um, he, he's talking about the extremity of, of hunger. Um, and I don't know it, how uh, hungry that you've, you've ever been in life, but probably one of the most vivid descriptions of hunger that I've ever encountered is in Ernest Gordon's book, The Miracle on the River Kwai, as he talks about uh, his time in the concentration camp when he was being forced. He was a he was a Scot. He was he was captured. Uh, he was forced, along with others, to work on the uh, the bridge over the River Kwai that was a part of the of the Japanese plan for their ultimately for their invasion of India and, and so on. But it was one of the worst concentration camps, highest death rates, worst conditions known in World War II. And they fed these these prisoners just barely enough to keep them alive. And for many of them, it simply wasn't enough, and they died. It was said that for every tie that was, re- that was laid for that railroad 
there was one prisoner that died in that concentration camp. And so he talks about hunger, again, in ways I had never even imagined. He talks about how that they got to a point where all of their thoughts were just about food. All of their all of their dreams that they would have when they could sleep would be about food. He talked about how that men would gather to listen to recipes being read. And they, they, they loved it and, and wanted more of it. He talks about all this, this hunger and the pains of the hunger that, that they experienced. And, of course, um, that is certainly a, a great extremity of hunger. So Matthew says that Jesus was hungry after 40 days, but what he's indicating here is that he's thoroughly hungry. In other words, he, he is suffering the effects of food depri- deprivation fully at this point. And Matthew's point is he's reached the point of readiness for testing. And then we get to verse number 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, Matthew also here refers to Satan as the tempter. And again, using that definite article, the tempter, one who puts to the test or one who tries. Now, this conditional clause, if thou be the Son of God, has been translated a few different ways uh, along the line of if you are the Son of God, as if, as if that is in question, um, whether you are the Son of God, since you are the, the Son of God. And there's a number of different ways that, as I understand it, grammatically it, it could be translated. Um, but it seems like the last one there really makes the most sense, since you are the Son of God. In, in, in other words, Satan is saying, since you are the Son of God. Remember that he had just come from the baptism when the heavens opened up and the Spirit descended and rested upon him like a dove and the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And and Satan is certainly following from that and says, well, since you're the Son of God, you can command these stones to be made bread. So it seems that either way, Satan is, is tempting Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God. But even more than this, what is it that Satan wants in this temptation? Satan wants to be obeyed. Satan wants to command, and ultimately to command God, even by cunning, which should not surprise us. Now, turning stones into loaves of bread was certainly no difficulty for Jesus. And if you've read the Gospels and the accounts of the many miracles and things that he worked, you know that 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 was a very simple thing, knowing him to be God in the flesh. That that, that is nothing to him to turn stones into bread that he could eat. But if he did so, it would put him into subjection to another master besides the Father in heaven. Verse number 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So Jesus responds to Satan with what is written, and that's a a, a formula that we will encounter quite a bit in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And by what is written, Jesus is referring to the written word of God, which was only the Old Testament at that time. Jesus is quoting from what we know as Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse number 3. And the point that is being made there that Jesus is, is making here is that obedience to the word of God is more important than food and physical needs. In other words, our lives are dependent on food and water, very dependent. To, to go any length of time without these, it's amazing how quickly that, that it begins to affect us and to weaken us. So we just cannot argue how necessary that food and water are to sustaining our lives. But the point that Moses was making to the children of Israel, uh, and, and he was referencing the manna in, in the wilderness, and what Jesus is picking up on as well, is that life is about more than just filling our bellies and just sustaining our physical existence and obedience to the word of God is more important to our life than even that food that we find so necessary. So it's like a, it's like a, a point by analogy or a point by comparison. Just as necessary as you find food to your life, the word of God is even more necessary and even more important. And so Jesus would not go beyond God's word in order to fill his stomach. Then we get to the second temptation in verses 5 to 7. Let's look at verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Now Matthew states that the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem. Um, and he doesn't elaborate. He doesn't explain how that this took place. So from the wilderness area, they would have been more than a day's journey from Jerusalem. Um, some have suggested, well, he transported Jesus there in, in some fashion, in whatever fashion it is that he and other angels, spirit beings, um, move about. Um, others suggest that, well, he just showed Jesus a vision, which doesn't really seem likely, um, just given the, the way that this is stated and, and referred to. doesn't seem very likely that that was the case. But either way, how, however that it, that it came about, we're, we're just not really told. But we're told that he was taken to Jerusalem, and he was set on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the pinnacle of the temple referred to the highest point of the temple complex that overlooked the Kidron Valley. It was said to be an, ex, an extremely steep drop from that point, over 400 feet to the valley floor below. And I think it was Josephus that... Um, wrote something about it that if anyone would stand there and, and would look over the edge and try to look down and see the floor below, that it, that it would make them dizzy, in, in essence, is what he was saying. It, it's, it truly was what we might call a dizzying height and, and fearful, um, fatal, certainly, drop. And then Satan uses a, form, a, a familiar formula of address. He saith unto him, in verse 6, If thou be the Son of God... Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, what we know about Satan from the Bible is that he is a created being. He is not omniscient. He is not God. 
He does not know all. He is not omnipresent. He is not in all places. But he does have a lot of knowledge, for, any, for just lack of a better way of putting it. He certainly knows more than you or I do. And it really shouldn't surprise us. He knows God's word very well. And he's actually quoting from Scripture, from Psalm 91 and verse number 11, to Jesus. Jesus, since you're the Son of God, you can cast yourself off of this high pinnacle because it is written that he will give his angels charge concerning you and they'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, Psalm 91 is a psalm that we covered not too awful long ago. Uh, Psalm 91 is about how that the one who trusts in Yahweh, and and we know from studying the Psalms that that is uh, what we might call a covenantal trust. It's taking refuge in Yahweh. And the one who trusts in Yahweh God will be delivered from danger. Now, that is um, in Psalm 91. Well, Jesus responds here in verse number 7. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Jesus responds here with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 16. And his response shows that for him to do such a thing would be testing God. So what does it mean to test God? Well, in the context of Deuteronomy chapter number 6, Moses, remember in Deuteronomy how that Moses has that second generation um, of Israel. Their, their parents had all died that had come out of Egypt because of their sin. They'd all dropped over in the, in the wilderness at some point. He's got that second generation of, of Israel. Uh, he's preparing them. He's, he's going to die. Joshua is going to take command. He's going to lead them into um, the promised land. So they're there on the plains of Moab, and Moses is is rehearsing all of the covenant to them, giving them all of this history. So at this point in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is referring to um, the incident at Massa in Exodus chapter number 17, where the people of Israel were thirsty, and they were complaining against God, and they doubted God's presence due to their thirst. In other words, the people of Israel attempted to manipulate God. And it might be a better way of thinking it than just simply saying testing God. They were actually attempting to manipulate God. In other words, put it, think of, think of, a, of a pouting child saying, if you don't give us water to drink, then you know, you're not really God, and we're not going to trust you. And that's essentially what Israel was doing that Moses is referring to, putting God to the test. Well, we could maybe put this another way. Israel claimed that they would only trust and follow God if he met their immediate needs. So either way that you want to think about it, This is what they were doing that Moses said was putting God to the test. And so Jesus refers to this verse and and this passage and says to Satan that it is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, this would be putting God to the test. This would be seeking to manipulate God for the Messiah to fling himself over this 
cliff. And that certainly was not the death that was foreordained for him from before the foundation of the world. So Jesus showed here the right understanding of Psalm 91 that meant that the promise of deliverance extended even to and through death for those who trust in him. You see, the the promises of God are not for this life only. In fact, if I might paraphrase the Apostle Paul, if the promises of God are for this life only, we are the most miserable people on the earth if we are trusting in those promises. So Jesus understood that, and he responded to Satan that way. Now we have the third temptation, beginning here with verse number 8. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Now, Matthew, using this word again, um, suggests that this occurred in the same manner of the temple temptation. So again, we don't know the logistics of, of how this happened and how this took place. But nevertheless, he shows Jesus the kingdoms of the world. And what all is involved in that site, it's, we can't say. But these were real, tangible, political, geographic, ethnic, national kingdoms. And their glory is referred to. Their glory, their, their majesty. And this, of course, doxa in the, in the Greek. It is very similar to kavod in, in the Hebrew that we've talked about as we've gone through the Psalms and how that, that term is related to, um, to the reign and to kingship and such. And so he's tempting Jesus with these kingdoms of the world and, and the, the reign over them to receive the glory of them. Verse 9. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. So Satan offered to give these to Jesus, only he must worship Satan. He must bow down to him. And of course, if Jesus were to bow down to Satan, then Satan would have universal power and reign. This is the most blasphemous act. Verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. So Jesus responds with quotes essentially from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, emphasizing that it's God alone who is to be worshipped and served, and he commands Satan to flee. And of course, Satan obeys, as we see in verse 11. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now, the word for ministered that is used, it is the word where we get deacon um, in the English from. The word it means to wait tables, uh, essentially, is how the word was used. And what he's saying here is that the angels came essentially as table servers. They came and they served Jesus' food um, to strengthen him. And this indicates that this was the end of the temptation. And at the end of this temptation, Jesus remained sinless. So, now we want to try to answer some questions about this temptation. Why was Jesus tempted? Why was this necessary? Why did he have to endure this temptation? Well, I think it will help if we first think about Satan's motivation. 
because it does help us to see the purpose of Jesus being tempted. So think about it this way. What is it that Satan wants? He was obviously very willing to tempt Jesus, seizing the opportunity, much like that he did in the case of Job um, back in, in the book of Job. So what does Satan want? Now, I think once you see it, it's, it's rather obvious when you read this account that, sa- that Satan wants certain things in general and certain things in particular in this temptation. To put it very um, succinctly, Satan wants to be God. That's, that's very clear. He wants to be God. So we can see that in three particular ways in this temptation. First of all, he wants to be obeyed. He wants to be the one who commands all of creation, and creation obeys. He wants to give the orders, so to speak. He commands Jesus in this temptation. Essentially, he, he's wanting Jesus to obey him instead of God. Secondly, Satan wants to be worshipped. And he offers all rewards to those who do, just as he offered the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Now, he obviously knows why Jesus came into the world. He knows. This is why he's offering him the kingdoms of the world. He knows why Jesus has come into the world. But he wants to be worshipped. And thirdly, Satan wants to rule over the earth unchallenged. Satan wants complete and total control. He wants the power, he wants ultimate power, and he wants all authority in heaven and in earth. So these are the things that Satan wants. And it's very evident when you read this temptation and the way that he tempted Jesus and and the things around which he tempted Jesus. Well, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians that we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. So my point is, is that it's very good for us to keep this in mind in regard to temptation. Satan is a liar. He's a liar, and Jesus said he's the father of it. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a a slanderer. Satan wants to be obeyed. He wants to be worshipped, and he will lie and cheat and steal to get as much of it as he can, including making you and making me empty promises if only we will bow to him. That's really what temptation comes down to. So thinking about Satan's motivation, this now brings us to think about this temptation in somewhat different terms. And it helps us to see why that Jesus was tempted. And so reading through this, keeping it in context, thinking about the the purpose and and Jesus' um, ministry and all of these things, I have six reasons why Jesus had to be tempted. Six reasons. Number one, Jesus had to be tempted here to demonstrate his divinity. Now, he's repeatedly in this temptation called the Son of God. And, of course, this follows right after the baptism where he was declared to be the Son of God. 
And he is continually tempted to use his power as God. In other words, to be God as God, to be equal with God, and so on. Further, his divinity was seen in the fact that he endured this temptation with impeccable holiness. He could not be tempted with sin. The second reason, he was tempted to demonstrate his sonship. Now again, following right after the baptism by John and his being anointed with the Holy Spirit where God from heaven declares him to be his son, being God's son meant that he was heir to the world. The world is his inheritance the, the, to, to rule over, and this is what Satan wants. Thirdly, he was tempted in order to demonstrate his humanity. So though he was declared the Son of God with the Holy Spirit resting on him, Matthew tells us he was hungry, even famished. Again, not just, not just a little bit hungry. He was famished. He was thoroughly affected with hunger, 40 days of fasting as a human being would be. Satan acknowledged that hunger and tempted him with turning stones to bread in order to eat and to be filled. In other words, even Satan acknowledged his humanity in this temptation. The fourth reason, he was tempted to demonstrate his servanthood. Not only was he declared son, but he was also declared servant of Yahweh. So his obedience and his loyalty to one master was put to the test. Now, Paul wrote this of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What did it mean? For Jesus to be the servant of Yahweh. It meant his death on the cross from the very beginning. And so what we have here in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is actually the beginning of what we might call his humiliation. When Paul says he humbled himself when he took upon him the form of a man, when he took upon him the body of flesh like a human man, when he took that body of flesh upon him, he humbled himself. And here is the beginning of his humiliation. There in the wilderness, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted of Satan as his obedience was tested. And that obedience will ultimately lead to, again, his death of the cross. Number five, he was tempted to show that he is the seed of the woman who will crush the head 
of the serpent. Think about, think about this scene. Now, this took place on earth in the Judean desert, but this was a supernatural conflict. This was, again, this was no ordinary common temptation that befalls us all. Just look at, at, at the people that are, or the beings, you might say, that are involved in this scene. You have God. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Son who has taken on human flesh. You have angels, and you have Satan. This is a supernatural conflict that is taking place, playing out in the wilderness of Judea. What is this conflict all about? Well, this conflict is a battle for the creation and reign over the earth. This is what Satan wants. This is what he attempted to usurp from Adam in the garden. And so this sets up the gospel account and how Matthew shows Jesus greater than Satan and his kingdom that is currently ruling over the world in the gospel of Matthew, ultimately triumphing over them in his cross. And sixthly, he was tempted in order to show his priesthood. And I might even say, prepare for it. The priest had to be one of the people in order to act as a proper intermediary and a representative of the people to God. Now, this is what the writer of Hebrews writes about this and the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So pay attention here. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verse, I'm going to start at verse 14. I'll go through chapter 5 and verse number 10. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, the writer of Hebrews is writing about how that Jesus and his priesthood is superior to the old covenant priesthood. Let's go on. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof, he ought as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. So here he's, he's making this comparison between the old covenant priesthood and the new covenant priesthood after the order of Melchizedek in, in which Jesus Christ is the high priest. But what he's saying here about the old covenant priesthood was that they, they had to be of the people. They, they had to feel the burden and, and the weight and the frailty and the weakness, and they had to be sympathetic to the people that they were offering on behalf of, even to the point that the old covenant priests had to make offerings and sacrifices for their own sins before they could even offer for the sins of the people. Now, what he's saying is, is that Jesus Christ is also a high priest, 
that is touched with all the feelings of our infirmities, that he is touched with all the feelings of our weakness and, and our frailty as human beings. He is touched with all of those things, yet without sin. And so he's going to go on to talk about how that Jesus Christ then is superior to that old covenant priesthood. He says, And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus here, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect or complete, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we see here in this temptation, Jesus entering into his humiliation, identifying with those that he represents and intercedes to for the Father, and entering into sympathy for that weakness and that frailty. To be a faithful high priest, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he had to suffer under obedience. And it really begins right here for Jesus Christ in his life and his ministry on this earth. And it's going to culminate in his death on the cross, just as Paul said. He took upon himself the form of a man, and he humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. So when we think about this temptation of Jesus and what it means, we, we don't want to fail in seeing Christ in his impeccable holiness resisting sin and Satan, because that is for certain what he does in this passage. So this account is not given to us to be some sort of a recipe um, to overcome temptation by quoting these verses, but rather it's pointing us to the one who was tempted in all points like as we are and was yet without sin and through faith this is your high priest before god